This week on the show, we cover high availability router firewalls using OpenBSD, CARB, PFSync, IFSTATE-D. We also show you how you can build the development version of Emacs on NetBSD. A discussion about where RC.D belongs, either libexec and not EDC, maybe. And FreeBSD 11.3 end of life removal uh, reminder. Uh, new versions of OpenSense and Midnight BSDs and other things in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 369. Where RCD belongs. Recorded for the 16th of September 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, Twitch uh, live watchers and people who might listen to this a little later. Doesn't matter much. We have the same content for everyone. And the headlines this week start with high availability router firewall using OpenBSD, CARP, PFSync, and IfState-D. So it says, I've been running OpenBSD on a Socris Net 5501 for my router firewall since early 2012. Because I ran a magnitude of services on this system, more on that later, this meager 500 megahertz uh, AMD geode with 512 megabytes of RAM we're starting to get a little sluggish while trying to do anything via the terminal. Despite the perceived performance hit during Interactive SSH sessions, it was still supported doing a full 100 megabit connection with NAT, so I wasn't overly eager to change anything. Uh, luckily though, my ISP increased the bandwidth available on my plan for to 150 megabits, so suddenly I needed something faster than 100 megabits. Unfortunately, that Socris 5501 only contains four via Rhine fast Ethernet controllers at 100 megabits. So now I was uh, using a slow system and wasting money by not being able to utilize, uh, you know, the top one third of my connection speed. Naturally, I looked back to Socris for an upgrade that would allow me to take advantage of this speed since it served me so well for so long. But I soon discovered that Socris stopped innovating and closed down their US operations a few years ago. After widening the search, I decided to try a PC Engine's APU 4C4, which is a four core one gigahertz AMD CPU, four gigabytes of RAM, and four Intel Pro 1000 gigabit ethernet adapters. Be a huge improvement. You know, it's four times as many cores at twice the megahertz, eight times as much RAM, and four NICs that are 10 times faster. Now that I have this new appliance, I figured why not try setting them up in failover mode uh, with CARP and PFSync. At the very least, this would come in handy during the post-patching reboots while uh, down for an upgrade every six months or so. A small win, but at least I could upgrade whenever I wanted without impacting internet connectivity. It says, note, while there are a lot of things I still have planned to do with the setup, I may have already noted any deficiencies and I welcome suggestions and feedback. So he has a little diagram of his new network topology where he has his uh, internet come into his switch where it then feeds into... Uh, his two separate routers, his new fancy uh, PC engines and his old Socrus. So yeah, he split his LAN and Wi-Fi into separate networks and added an additional layer of separation between the secured servers and the hardware 
uh, on the hardwired connection and any potential rogues coming into the wireless. I may eventually flatten this once I feel all services locked down better, but for now it gives me a bitch better or unwarranted sense of security. I plan to eventually replace the three unmanaged switches with a single managed switch with VLANs, but that's again for a future article. So brief description of what I'm end up running on my router slash firewall. He's got his uh, DCPD, which runs on the network interfaces that go to his servers and to his wireless TFTP so that he can network boot stuff. Open SMTBD, which acts merely as a relay for all the LAN servers to reach his personal mail server. Open NTPD for time, create a pool in NSD for round robin client access and so on. Unbound for DNSSEC validation and upstream DNS over TLS to the quad nine public resolvers. NSD to host his personal domains for easy access on his LAN and uh, Alahai Diamond daemon to expose a zfs array on the lan to osx clients for time machine backups uh, and of course it goes without saying that all the systems run open ssh and require keys and he uses uh it says dd client but maybe he needs dh client probably no nope, no dd client for dynamic dns to update if my isp supplied dhcp address ever changes in addition he's using moonin for monitoring and pflow for connection tracking and nfs en as well Data from the latter two are published to and accessible from a server on the LAN. He also uses uh, Ansible to manage all of his files uh, and uh, Jinja2 to ensure that the proper config files are pushed to the correct systems. So on both router one and router two, he's got IP forwarding enabled, or I think it's gateway mode in FreeBSD, uh, and then CARP with preempt is enabled. Uh, then he configures his serial, sets the host name and the IP addresses and so on. In this case, his Socris, has the uh, IP address dot two in his three different subnets. And he configures uh, the Socris uh, to do CARP on the dot one address with uh, an advertisement skew of 100, which I think is 100.256 of a second. <laughs> That's quick. And he configures PF sync to sync on the uh, first interface or the VR1 interface, which I guess is technically the second interface, but anyway. Uh, and he also configures PF flow. And then he configures IF state D, which, you know, init state auto, and then what to do when carp goes up or down and so on. I guess this is uh, similar to what you would do with dev D on FreeBSD to automatically trigger things based on the carp state changing. Uh, then he has some macro definitions for his pf.conf file, where he defines his external interface is VR0, his sync interface for the pf sync stuff is VR1. The LAN is VR2 and the Wi-Fi is VR3. On the PC engines, similar thing, configure the, con the serial console, do DHCP from the internet, configures uh, interfaces in the three other subnets as dot three, and then CARP on all of them with uh, the dot one address. And he didn't provide an advertisement SKU, so it defaults to zero. So this way, this the, the new uh, PC engines box will run the dot one IP, uh, but if it's ever down, then after waiting for 100, 256 of a second, so, you know, about 400 milliseconds, then the Socris will take over the dot one address that all of his machines on his network will use as their gateway. And this way, if you're trying to use the internet and the router goes down within a couple of milliseconds, the other router is taken over and you send your packets and it'll route. And because he's using pfsync, all of the NAT state for connections you had open has been replicated to the backup router. So it doesn't even interrupt connections you have open at the time. And so, you know, you can even have a phone call that'll keep working through 
the router going down. And basically you can see similar configuration on the uh, PC engines, except for the interfaces are called EM123, etc., instead of VR, since they're the Intel Ethernet. And he, you know, in his PF config file has the different uh, interfaces again. By he uses an include statement to put his uh, PF interface definitions in a separate file. So the actual PF rules can be exactly the same on both machines and synced. And then only the interface definitions are different between the two routers. So yeah, that's what you got to do to do a, a redundant router. I do something similar for two routers. Yep. And that keeps you not running uh, quickly into the data center when something goes down because you just switch to a different box or different IP. Uh, and he's also got some links to some other materials and more stuff about CARP uh, separate. Somebody else's blog post called BSD Stuff that has a whole DH CARP setup, etc. Oh, cool. All right. Then we have an article uh, building the net, uh, building the development version of Emacs on NetBSD. So this is from Lars Ingebrigtsen, who is involved in uh, Emacs development, I think. So that's an interesting thought. So let's read the article here. Uh, Lars writes, I hadn't really planned on installing a NetBSD virtual machine after doing all the other two BSDs, but then a NetBSD-related Emacs bug report arrived. The first in years? So here I am. Actually, finding the correct ISO to install took days, but with the help of some friends, I finally found the right set. Go team NetBSD. Uh, I have probably, or no, absolutely no experience with NetBSD, so my build instructions here are probably more involved than necessary. They're certainly the longest of the BSD instructions. Ah, well. Uh, first, as root, you set package path to your NetBSD uh, package source source, so this in this case 9.0, then you export that of course to make it available in your shell, and then you package add a bunch of stuff that you need, so git, uh, gnu tls, um, basically a base environment to set up a desktop to have Emacs running. Then, yeah, nothing too exciting, then as your own user, you do the, the git clone to get your uh, latest git version to actually get the sources to fix the bug, you cd into that directory, and then set your LD library path to user x11r7 slash lib, export that, and uh, then run uh, the autogen shell script, uh, which then would require you to extend your LD flags to uh, user package lib, CPP flags needs to be set, and then run configure with uh, dash dash without make info. Uh, then he runs gmac dash j4 to use four CPUs, uh, and then run source Emacs. So that builds basically, or has built by that time, uh, the Emacs from the Git repository. And you can run that, of course. Uh, look, it works. There's a screenshot for as proof. And he writes, now I guess there's something up with the image support because that logo was supposed to have a black background. Ah, yes, I see now. Here, the Emacs logo is white on black and it should be more or less uh, transparent. So uh, this seems to be the error here that is uh, to be fixed. Uh, but otherwise it seems uh, okay to work. So I guess there will be a follow-up uh, making that fix happen. And there are other articles uh, linked there with uh, building development versions on Emacs on FreeBSD and on OpenBSD. So if you're interested in those, you can look uh, at that. They are linked from our show notes. Yep. I think instead of having to specify the LD flags stuff there, you might have been able to get away with uh, just uh, like dash dash prefix equals user PKG or something. There's 
uh, some configure flags, you can tell it that, you know, I have a set of libs and includes that live under some other directory, like user local on FreeBSD or user package on NetBSD. Mm. Yeah, but for someone but without experience, that, that is fairly, uh, fairly good to get started with your developer. Okay, time for the news roundup this week. Here's the namesake article for our episode this week. RC.D belongs in libexec, not etc. Yeah, so this is from uh, Julio Marino, who is a NetBSD and FreeBSD developer. And he says, let's open with the controversy. The scripts that live under slash etc slash rc.d in FreeBSD, NetBSD, and OpenBSD are in the wrong place. They should live in slash libexec slash rc.d because they are code, not configuration. You know, on, on first blush, I agree. This misplacement is uh, something that has bugged me for ages, but I never had the energy uh, to open this can of worms back when I was uh, very involved in NetBSD. I suspect it would have been a draining discussion and a very difficult thing to change. But what am I talking about anyway? If you administer a BSD system, you almost certainly encounter the etc slash rc.d directory. And if you have administered any pre-systemd Linux systems, you might have seen etc slash init.d. These directories contain the startup scripts to configure the system at boot time and are immutable. The code is parameterized to allow changing their behavior via configuration files, not by editing the code. And that's the base of my critique. But before getting into why the current state is problematic and how things should look, let's first dig into how we got here. And for that, we have to go back in history. History, the original BSD approach. In 4.4 BSD in 1993, the boot process was rather simple. The kernel started init, which in turn ran the etc slash rc script before starting the Getty processes on each console. That etc rc monolith was in charge of configuring the systems or the machine's file systems and processes and delegating two other scripts, etc net start for network configuration and uh, rc.local for locally added services. Current BSD systems are more advanced in this area as we shall see later, but the core boot process remains the same. Init gets started by the kernel, and then RC runs everything from there. RC is the primary entry point and bootstrap for a collection of shell scripts. In the early days, package management and file provenance tracking, like we are used to having in popular Linux distributions, was not a thing. You were expected to tune the system's behavior by editing files, which might or might not have been designed to support you editing them. If you had to edit, etc slash rc, which was a script shipped with the system, well, that was just fine. rc.local, on the other hand, was not shipped by the system. It was up to you to create it if you wanted to have any custom startup commands without modifying that rc script. This is where things get interesting. etc slash rc.local didn't need to be supported. If you were expected to just edit etc rc, then why have a separate file? Uh, the reason is most likely to simplify system upgrades. During an upgrade, you want the benefit of any upstream changes to that etc slash rc file, which uh, some of which might actually be necessary for problem si proper system operation. Applying updates to manually modifying a manually modified file is tricky, so putting as many of these manual overrides into that rc.local file helped minimize that problem. But then we had the system 5 uh, version 4 approach in 1988. Also came with its own and very different boot process. The key difference was that System 5 had the concept of run levels. As a result, configuring the boot process was a more convoluted endeavor because it was possible to detect different services or to select different services for different run levels. To accomplish 
per run level tuning, the system used configuration directories rather than files. There is a separate RC number.d directory for each run level. Uh, and these directories contained one file per action to take uh, at startup time. To avoid duplicates, these files were just symlinks to the common files in the etcrc or etc init.d directory. And the symlinks, not their targets, were named so that their uh, lexicographical sort order determined the startup order. Once again, we have already observed issues here. The symlinks under those rcx.d directories are configuration because their presence indicates what to start and when, uh, and their names determine the order. But the files under that init.d directory are not. They are shell scripts shipped with the system and should not be manually modified. Right? You have configuration files to change any of the settings in those uh, init.d scripts. So then we get to the NetBSD modernization. So NetBSD modernized its boot process in the 1.5 release in the year 2000, and it did so in two ways. First, it introduced that rc.d as a directory to contain separate scripts per action and service. And second, it introduced the RC order tool to determine the order in which these services would run. RC order uses dependency information encoded in the scripts as comments, not lex lexicographical order. So you're not renaming the files to change the order. It's literally just some comments at the top of the file. FreeBSD inherited this design for its 5.0 release in the year 2003, and OpenBSD re-implemented something similar in their 4.9 release in 2011. With these two pieces in place, the RC script in NetBSD and FreeBSD changed to executing all files in the rc.d directory based on the output of the RC order command. Among these scripts was rc.d slash local, uh, whose purpose was to run that rc.local file if it exists, and that's it. Uh, and so then the RC script became relatively trivial. The key thing to notice here is that the scripts shipped in the etc slash rc.d directory are highly configurable via user-controlled rc.conf files. This essentially made the scripts read-only as it shifts any customizations into the configuration file. System administrators are not supposed to edit the scripts. Instead, they're supposed to edit the config file uh, and customize what the script does based on that. Uh, and if they need something else, then they have that rc.local script where they can put arbitrary commands. So why does rc.d not belong in etc? The main gripe is that files under rc.d are immutable scripts. They do not belong in etc, and their presence there makes system upgrades harder for no good reason. So you see in NetBSD and FreeBSD, system upgrades happen by unpacking new distribution sets in the root directory, then running a shell script to incorporate any configuration updates. This script is interactive and helps highlight how uh, new system-provided updates uh, are merged into configuration files and deal with conflicts from any previous manual edits. This process might seem rudimentary to you, but it's actually pretty robust and easy to understand. And then you have tooling like sysupgrade or merge master and so on. So why is this a problem? Well, when there's updates to those rc.d scripts, they're treated as configuration changes rather than when somebody updates the PS binary, you don't get a thing asking if you, are you sure you want to merge this change? It just overwrites old PS with new PS. But who really cares? And why are you distracted to review a code change when you're trying to do configuration conflicts? And so I agree that for that reason, having rc.d live in etc was a bad choice. Although I agree also with Julio that it might not be that easy to change now. Just so many things assume etc rc.d and so on. It touches a lot of stuff. Yeah. But it might almost be worth moving it just because, you know, even uh, in... For package base, we're looking at you know special handling for any of the files under etc. 
Uh, and we don't want to have that for Darcy.descripts. In particular, if there is a conflict somehow or something, you don't want to end up with an extra file in etcrc.d that might have an error, like a not be a valid shell script because it has the the merge markers in it or something, yeah. uh, or even just etcrc.d slash service name dot package save or whatever, uh, and you end up running that service twice or something. Yeah, that's undesired. Yeah. So NetBSD did it. Anyway, uh, so he goes on. Where should rc.d live? Startup scripts provided by the system need to live in a location that can contain executables, but we don't want those executables to show up in your path. These requirements discard bin and sbin and points us toward libexec. And that's, you know, where a bunch of other shell script type stuff lives, like all the subscripts for BSD install are under user libexec, BSD install, and so on. Therefore, the read-only startup script should move from etc rc.d to libexec rc.d, which, by the way, also applies to etcrc, etcrc.subr, etcrc.shutdown, and so on. And that's it. libexec slash rc uh, would continue to use rc order to check, and, and you know, you'd have your libexec rc.d. You might even want to support a separate location for user-created services, which might still be in etcrc.d. But, you know, we have user local, RC. Uh, user local etc rc.d. And I guess, so his suggestion here is that those, in fact, would move to user local libexec rc.d. I wonder how many scripts are already relying that on that path and have it hard-coded. Um, they probably shouldn't be, and we could probably get away with making rc.d a symlink to, like, the etc version a symlink to the libexec version. Right, for a while. To deal with that. Uh, with this design, system upgrades would be much saner because the configuration merge process would focus purely on actual configuration files and not on irrelevant code changes. I kind of agree that just a lot of the files that you're not meant to modify should move out of etc. Now, some of them are configuration files and therefore probably shouldn't go to libexec, but there are more files I would like to see live under etc defaults and have an immutable version there and then have the modifiable version which might not exist by default in slash etc. So getting the total number of files in etc down by moving all the shell scripts uh, out of there into libexec and uh, having more of the defaults live in defaults. Uh, so the files that are in the root are the ones you change and they shouldn't contain anything if you're not changing away from default. True, yeah, yeah that would help. Yeah, anyway, interesting thoughts. And yeah, if I had some free time, I might even try whipping up this change just to see what it would end up looking like yeah maybe it sparks a discussion and hey, you know uh it could be someone building a prototype for this is something we could maybe do at that uh hackathon that's coming up although i guess when this episode airs it'll already be over so. <laughs> the next one is already announced i guess but by then yeah. okay yeah uh, thanks uh, julio for writing that up and uh, giving us a bit of uh things to think about and, oh, we should re remind you about something. FreeBSD 11.3 is end of life. So, or at, by the end of this month, as the, at the time of this recording, uh, the FreeBSD security officer writes that as of September 30, 2020, FreeBSD 11.3 will reach the end of life and will no longer be supported by the FreeBSD security team. Users of FreeBSD 11.3 are strongly, strongly, Encouraged to upgrade to a newer release as soon as possible, which is supported. And so you uh, are given a bit of a table for when the uh, branches reach the end of life. And yes, that is definitely happening for 11.3. And some of the upcoming ones are also in there. There's a bit of time left, but yeah, don't be lazy about updates. Uh, get the latest version that is supported so that way 
when a security issue happens, you will get patches. Otherwise, you have to roll them yourself or yeah, be uh, exposed. Then we have an information for people who are running OpenSense because there's a new version available. That is 20.7.1. And the release uh, notes write that, uh, Dear all, small update here with security advisories, multicast fixes, and logging reliability patches, amongst others. Overall, the jump to HardenBSD 12.1 is looking promising from our end. From the reported issues, we still have uh, more logging quirks to investigate, and especially net map support, uh, which is used in IPS and Sensei, is lacking in some areas that were previously working. Hmm. Patches are being worked on already, so we shall get uh, there soon enough. Stay tuned. Okay, uh, they provide a couple of patch notes. So they split the log process name into separate columns, filters new uh, style log directories accordingly, and delayed uh, to improve syslog and gstartup. Ah, okay, so that's the system part. Uh, they switched the uh, login page properly to the latest jQuery 3.5.1. And in the firewall departments, they added a select box for static filters in the live log. Uh, three firmware things to ignore the mandoc.db files in the health output as the system will regenerate them weekly. The, uh, oh, they bring back the Chinese avian mirror, avian mirror, yeah. And they remove the defunct open.sense.nz and rage network mirrors, which didn't give them the latest version, I guess. Um, plugins got added or updated, the OS Acme client, the OS FFR, the OS Postfix, and OS UDP broadcast relay got updates. Bit of Parts of the source side set the current VNet before calling net ISR dispatch in the NGI phase. They uh, have assorted multicast group join and leave corrections. They fixed the VMS driver packet loss and degraded and degraded performance, so that shouldn't happen again. Uh, fixed memory corruption in the USB network device driver, always good to have fixes. And fixed the multiple vulnerabilities in SQLite. Oh, yes, that has been yeah, affecting a lot of ports. Uh, they fix a sent message and privilege escalation. And ports, updates of Perl and Squid are also in there. All right, then grab the new release and update your boxes. Speaking of new releases, Midnight BSD has released 1.2.7, which is available on their mirrors now, as well as on GitHub. It includes several bug fixes and that set of security updates uh, with the latest ISO release uh, and is recommended for new installations. Uh, and they also have some updates to their libm ports, which is uh, used for their package management stuff. Oh, good. Yeah. So, time for Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have a Tarsnap podcast for you. That's uh, promising. Yeah. Uh, so, the Security Headlines podcast uh, managed to get an interview with Colin Percival. And so, they have a talk about that. Good. Uh, it goes into the history of it, how Tarsnap was started back in 2006 when, free, uh, when Colin was the FreeBSD uh, security officer and how he built it and everything. Oh, that's good to know a bit about, you know, behind the scenes work that made Tarsnap happen and how it actually, uh, you know, from idea to product. That's always interesting for people who want to do something similar in, a, in the computer science area. That's that's always good to know. Mm -hmm. Oh, then we have some NetBSD tips and tricks for you. That uh, seems like an, uh, oh yeah, students, uh, engr.scu.edu. And they have a, a NetBSD tips and tricks page. Uh, they were originally written for NetBSD 7. They do also apply to NetBSD 8 and 9 though. So what can you do? What are the tricks here? Some power management stuff. Uh, current and available CPU frequencies can be queried and changed. Uh, then you can set the frequency scaling daemon. 
suspend to memory is shown. Suspend to memory on i386 and AMD64 are a bit different, so they distinguish those. Uh, suspend to disk is also a thing they show. So that's, yeah, that's, especially when you're running on the... Well, suspend to disk is not supported by... FSD oh, right, sorry. Yeah. I think OpenBSD has something, but uh, Net and Free do not. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, this seems uh, written for Net uh, BSD on laptops primarily. Yep. Uh, but what's interesting about a bunch of the ones at the beginning here is that it would be an interesting project for someone to just do the FreeBSD versions of these because the sysctls are named slightly different. It's like dev.cpu.frequency or whatever. Once you have the CPU freak or the core temp, actually, I think it's the core temp uh, kernel module loaded, then you can do this. The suspend thing is just ZZZ on either i386 or AMD64. The power management stuff, I think you use cam control instead of ATA, CTL, and a bunch of things like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, a bunch of good advice in here. And an interesting start, if somebody wanted to make a FreeBSD version of this, uh, it gives you kind of a list of different things to try or you know, different objectives a user might have. And then you could just figure out how to do each of them on FreeBSD and write a similar guide. Yep. Uh, then we have the FreeBSD Mini Git Primer. So this is work in progress, but nevertheless uh, already working. Yes, so basically as the FreeBSD project is moving towards using Git for its source code management, they've started translating the docs and so on and helping people get up to speed on how to use Git. Yep, so you can see uh, how to keep uh, your system current with the FreeBSD source tree in Git when it happens, when that is. Um, and difference between normal clones and shallow clones, building, updating, bisecting, everything that you would need uh, as a developer, but also as a user to actually grab the latest sources from the tree. Uh, all good there. And, oh yes, we have the GhostBSD financial reports. Why do you think this is interesting? Well, why not know about uh, how an open source project uh, finances itself? Because that's not normally what people... Uh, tell you about an open source project right away. But they did that for GhostBSD, so they have the financial reports from January to June 2020 available, and the people who pledged a certain amount of US dollar. Yeah, so the list at the top is currently subscribed Patreons, uh, so they make that donation every month, I think, and then below is the actual ledger of individual donations. Ah, yes, yeah, so either a monthly donation or a single one, hopefully it... Uh, gives the project something to sustain itself, basically. And again, mm -hmm. we get a lot of uh, comments all the time. Oh, I cannot program. I'm not good in documentation and some other things. How can I help my favorite open source project? It's sometimes just a donation away. That, that money goes to the people who can put it to good use for uh, servers, for getting documentation from vendors. All kinds of different things can happen with a bit of money in their pockets. So this is... Um, just my small plug here for not just uh, GhostBSD, but any of the open source projects you are. Yeah, um, I think biggest thing you can do to get involved in an open source project is tell the people in the open source project that you use it and that you like it. Ah, yes. Basically say thank you is the, the best thing you can do. And the second best thing you can do uh, is give money. And the third best thing you can do is give your yeah, time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the preferred order, I guess. So a little bit of, uh, you know, shoulder clapping and a virtual uh thank you for my uh for solving my problems with your software that's always something cool to read in the morning in your inbox right all right uh we 
would jump into feedback and questions. But before we do that, we should mention that uh, our sponsor, Tarsnap, has you backed up and restoring as well when you do it properly. So Tarsnap is your real good solution for the kind of backup problems you have. The nice thing is it's encrypted. And why should that be important to you? Well, because the place where the encryption happens is your system. So before any of your data leaves your system, it will be encrypted. So where it's located on AWS, it sits there and everyone else who may or may not have access to it cannot see any of the data in its pure form. Like they just see garbled something. They cannot make heads and tails of that. But if you need to get your files back because you need to restore or have a file that you deleted locally and want to pull down from the cloud, that's where Tarsnap shines because then it downloads the file, encrypts it automatically and presents you the original file that you backed up way back when directly in your system. And that's where Tarsnap gives you all the possibilities and the good night's sleep to know that all your data is secured in the cloud, but no one else but you and the people who have the key, which is typically just you, um, are the people who can get to the actual data. And if you think, wow, that must cost a lot of money if I do a regular backup or do backup a lot of files. No, the example on the front page is that Alice pays less than $5 per month, even though she has thousands of daily backups adding up to several terabytes of non-unique data. And for your data, you might not know up front how much you would have to pay, but Tarsnap can simulate that. And the uh, Tarsnap Mastery book will demonstrate that for you. So you can guess up front or let the system know and tell you how much you would actually pay to back up this data. And that's the best guess uh, for your you know, calculation, how much money you would have to spend. But it's surprisingly less and the benefits of Tarsnap are really the encryption, the source code is available, there's plenty of clients for all the operating systems available and the deduplication makes sure that it's small enough to actually not require or require much of data transfers. So yeah, check out Tarsnap, I think you will like it and if you know how to use Tar then you don't have to do much learning to use Tarsnap. Yeah, and if you want to know more about how it works, check out that uh podcast interview Colin did yeah that's also a good starting ground all right now it's the feedback and questions part uh oh it would be very very lonely in here if people didn't write us anything so if you have a question that we should help you with or have a comment about the show or the BSD world whatever it might be uh, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv and this will in the future be a fully fledged part of this episode. Okay, the first one is Daniel who has a question about documentation tooling. Daniel writes, what tooling does the FreeBSD documentation team use to build the HTML pages like the handbook, the Portis handbook and RC scripting? Uh, I browse the SVN repo and all I see are make files and XML files. Are you sitting there writing out XML code? Uh, so the answer to that is yes. It's not just XML. It's, it's basically a version of XML called DocBook, which is basically a way of marking up. So you, you write you know, a paragraph uh, of text for the documentation and you can wrap that 
in some XML that says, you know, this is a paragraph and then this part is something the user typed in. So this is show it like it was their screen or this is an acronym and it'll link to a definition for the acronym and stuff like that. But yes, it's a bit hard to approach. So there's a project going on now to convert all of that to ASCII doc, which is basically um, markdown with some extra bits added to make it possible to keep all the richness we had in the XML. So we have a bunch of things where like, we'll have a, a block of text and it'll have annotations to it and so on. But the idea is that in the future, anybody can write documentation in just simple markdown. And then we use ASCII doc, uh, which is basically a superset of markdown. It's, you know, plain markdown works as ASCII doc, but ASCII doc also can do more complicated things that markdown can't. So in the cases where we need to be able to draw diagrams and stuff, ASCII doc gives us a little more, a few more options there. Yep. But yes, there's a project ongoing and hopefully relatively soon all the XML will go away. The XML itself isn't so bad, although there are parts of the website where there are basically XML style sheets and those get really complicated. Yeah, that's true. And the few people that understand some of that are awfully busy or not around much anymore. Uh, and so switching to something more modern will hopefully allow us to reinvigorate that team with fresh people who are interested in working yep. on it. And if you want to know how to build the current website, there is on freebsd.org, if you go to the documentation section, there is the link to a documentation project primer, which tells you everything about uh, how to get the sources. You're probably there already, but how to build the website or any part of the documentation set, that's probably um, your starting point that you want to get into right now. But as Alan said, we're looking at uh, some modernizations coming down the line sooner or later. And that will be an exciting way for people to join and help out in this way. Uh, so thank you for that uh, question. And uh, next up we have, uh, where did the ZFS tutorial go? Ah, that's a very concrete question. And just wondering, the question is, just wondering why you pulled down the wonderful ZFS tutorial. Oh yes. Ah. Uh, so it's not so much that we pulled it down as we migrated the website to a podcasting platform because uh, it made it easier to keep the show going and keep the notes up to date. Uh, and we've never found time to go back and copy and paste all the old tutorials and rebuild them to display correctly. That tutorial is from 2013. I guess it's mostly still valid, but I don't know that it teaches you anything that's not in the FreeBSD handbook. But I do have all the original tutorials sitting somewhere. Um, I maybe can at least throw them in the uh, GitHub repo that we use for the these feedback questions and stuff now so that people can at least have access to them and maybe work them into something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been meaning to get the rest of the episodes, the old episodes backfilled into the website and I've not got around to that and it's higher priority than the tutorials. Yeah. So we didn't pull that down to uh, mess with you. Sorry. It's just, yeah. So we didn't delete it on purpose. We just didn't migrate it when we moved the website. Yeah, like it's two been years a while. Ago. Yeah. So definitely check out the FreeBSD handbook that should get you started the same way as the tutorial did. And if you get stuck somewhere or have further questions, you know our email address. Uh, then uh, Johnny writes us about the browser Cold Wars. Ooh, that goes. Uh, I really wished I had something more constructive to write into the show, but uh, anyway, here it is. I have tried all these browsers and was using Otter Browser regularly since it's intended to be a clone of Opera. I used to love Opera, but they have sold out to Google. 
All three of these browsers are not uh, to the level of Firefox. They all seem to be missing features or they don't work with some of the websites I visit regularly. I don't think they ever were meant to be a clone of Firefox. However, when you get used to something, you expect it. As I see it, the main issue with browsers other than the two main browsers, Mozilla or Chrome, is web developers apparently don't like their users and don't build their websites to be browser agnostic. I can't imagine that it requires a lot of effort to make a website browser agnostic in 2020. Even Firefox is having issues with some sites now, so it makes it almost impossible for new innovations to come along outside of Google. Here we are again back in the middle of another browser war, and it seems like it's a cold war this time around. Anyway, love the show and keep up the good work, guys. Yeah, um, it, we definitely got into this duopoly type thing where Chrome and Mozilla are the only things out there. You know, in general, I, I would say the as someone who's tried to build a website, you know, you build a website to the standard and it should look the same in all the browsers and it never does. And how much of that is the fault of the browsers rather than the fault of the website people? You'd hope to not end up with a bunch of extra CSS style sheets or something to deal with, oh, if it's this browser, do it differently. But hard to say. But yes, I do wish that uh, Google didn't have quite so much of the market share there. I saw a timeline thing recently showing, you know, how bad it was at one point where Internet Explorer was 90 plus percent of the internet traffic and then how things recovered uh, and then how they kind of went yeah, up again. definitely. And then with, you know, Microsoft's like, well, we have an, a browser now, but it's really just Chromium. That's not a not yeah, really a in different a way, browser. The the history of the web has always been this kind of compatibility between browsers, the web designers or the web developers, and the standards committees who are also coming up with new ways of you know making the web interesting or standardizing some of the things, and that also translate into how it's implemented. But you know, I remember at the the worst part of it when there was I think it was called browsershots.org or something where you could send your URL in. And they would send you screenshots from 40 different machines where they'd be like, here's a bunch of different versions of different browsers, but also here's Firefox on Windows, Mac, Linux, and BSD. And you can see that your website doesn't yeah. look the same on any of them, even though it's the same version of Firefox on all four <laughs> platforms. Yeah, that's pretty bad. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of makes the web less accessible in this way, or at least different for different users you get a different browsing experience or how a website looks or look at accessibility the people who are requiring screen readers that's even worse for them like which representation of the web are they getting yeah uh you know a lot of browsers now have you know reading mode or whatever that tries to to help that by getting rid of some of the clutter on the screen and so on yeah um I'm not sure how much we can do as users to kind of demand how the web should look like to us or how browsers should work and behave. Well, I guess the, the real one is you could find another browser and pay for it and lead to it becoming popular. I know a bunch of people have got into Brave, I think it's called. But at this point, it's like we really have to make sure that mm, Firefox yeah, doesn't that go be, away. that would be bad. <laughs> Otherwise. Yeah, they fired a couple of people uh, recently-ish. So that was kind of a... Not sure where this is going, but I guess there will always be one browser that is kind of the alternative browser and they keep popping up from time to time. Like sometimes they don't catch on and people are just using what they know, but sometimes it can be that, I mean, the popularity of Opera during its time, that was already a good competition to the uh, back then existing browsers. But so the development goes on and we'll just watch and 
maybe move from one browser to the next. And uh, yeah, as the web evolves or de-evolves, if you want to call it that, it's, yeah, it's interesting to watch this, but yeah, we should also be aware not that the web is given away to some, you know, one big corporation that defines how everything is presented to us. Uh, yeah, that's some food for thought. And if you have questions or comments or want to join that discussion, uh, then you can send us a follow-up to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And we'll leave you with that in this episode. Thank you for listening and uh, watching live on Twitch. We'll be back next time on this same channel, same show, same people, but different content. Thank you.